This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on The Other Side. We recap and review the latest Bigfoot horror movie on our top ten list, Creature from Black Lake from 1976. Is it a classic or is it a clunker? And on TV Club, we review Expedition Bigfoot, episode number nine. Guys, is Bigfoot a ghost? Go to patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club to subscribe. It's Bigfoot Collector's Club with Bryce and Michael. I know a ghost story or two. Let's do this. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collector's Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I am your host, Michael McMillan, with me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and our super producer, Roy Ribray. Oh, <laughs> I'm have a cup of tea. Aren't we clever, all three of us? Eh? Yes, and we just lost both of our <laughs> Irish listeners. I would turn off. I would just Irish. click my podcast off right what? now. With Scottish, what were you doing there? So I, you're some kind of was, Highland vibe. I was doing like uh, the North, you know, oh, like okay. it was like a Game of Thrones, like mm. Yorkshire. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. It's you know, look. It's, I'm sure that's a horrible interpretation as well. But <laughs> come on, guys, you know you're here for the terrible accents and uh, not not the not the deep dive uh, episodes into cryptids, which we're doing today. Uh, oh snap! Oh snap! We got a lot of um, feedback saying people enjoyed our uh, the Roswell series, and then we did a little single episode of the Amityville Horror around October, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I. Th- thought you know what we've been celebrating bigfoot all winter long uh with bryce being on expedition bigfoot of, of which we have some news that i want to get to uh about that show very very shortly um so we've been doing a lot of bigfoot doing a lot of uh recaps of expedition bigfoot over on the other side we're coming towards the end of the season We've also been doing on the other side, the Patreon, we've been doing Northern Frights. And I thought, what better way to sort of put a cap on the winter season than to combine Northern Frights and all this Bigfoot talk and finally do a deep dive two-parter on the Abominable Snowman. Boom. 
Oh mic, yeah. Mic drop. So snowball uh, drop. <laughs> we did it. We did it in an episode uh uh ages ago. Uh and Bryce did a fantastic job of fitting it all into uh one one little high strangeness. But Yeti, the abominable snowman, he's one of my favorites, all-time faves, and I thought he deserved a little bit more attention. Uh, uh, so we're going to get into that in the second half of the show. But before we do, we're going to have a little fun up top with your boys. No guests this week. We didn't want to force anyone to get <laughs> indulged, be trapped in one of these deep dives. Uh, I'm sort of enjoying <laughs> hovering around our 150th anniversary episode and just spending a little bit more time with the two of you here privately. We will have guests. We've got awesome guests coming up very soon uh but for the next two episodes it's just gonna be us it's just us great That's nice love it i i like that it's like you don't want to just be like hey come on this show and sit there for an hour and listen to me talk about yeti <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like the worst date you've ever had <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> shut up and i'm gonna talk about the himalayas <laughs> So, Bryce, something really fun happened this week as we're recording, uh, and uh, I'm I'm excited to talk to you about it. Yeah. You got some feedback from, was it just random viewers from the episode eight of Expedition Bigfoot? Something kind of, people noticed something exciting. Tell us what happened. Well, the first text I got about it was was from my brother, Brett, who, uh, who's been watching the show. And, and he texted me, um, and maybe I'll just read it out loud. This was on Wednesday he texted me, um, and he said, Is it me, or in the latest episode of Expedition Bigfoot, when Russell turns around after saying they will come back in the dark, and he hears the noise behind <laughs> That's him? That's an ominous quote. Yeah. Seriously. They will come back in the dark. <laughs> Does it look like there's a Bigfoot directly in the middle of the screen at exactly 18 at 17 seconds, 18 minutes and 17 seconds pause. And he took a picture of it and circled it. And I remember the first, I was like, I was, I remember when I first saw it, I was like, Oh no, here we go. My brother's into blob squatch, right? Like <laughs> I can't tell you how many Bigfoot photos I get with like, like a red circle around it. Like, Hey, I think there's something here, but, but it wasn't until I got started getting a few tweets about it as well. And I go, Oh, Oh shit, maybe this is worth taking a look at. Um, you know, somebody basically tweeted me, a few people, the exact same thing. Hey, I think there's a Bigfoot uh walking into a tree back there, um, right at the 18, 17. And I was like, oh, okay, hold on. Let me go check the footage. And so um I went back to the episode and I and it this needs context, right? So Russell Accord is there with his cameraman Zach, who we know. Um, mm -hmm. and it's just them. That's it. Right. It's just them. And Russell's been tracking this thing and he hears some breaks in the wood and he's, he's just been sitting quiet for like hours this is, for listeners who haven't been watching the show. This is in Washington state. Yeah, this is in Washington state. And he's using like, you know, he even goes to say in the military, if you want to be, if you want to go unnoticed, don't move. So basically he just sits there for like, a few hours and then you hear this loud tree snap like and he's like and he gets up and he turns around and he's like whatever it is it's here and 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 then he's like he's just looking and he's looking around and he can't see anything 
Mind you, that's right at the 18, 17 minute mark. And he says, look, look at my arm. The hairs on my arm are standing up. Now this, I don't, I can't go into his military background, but let me just assure you, if Russell's hair is standing up on his arm, some shit's going down, right? Undoubtedly. Yeah, yes. undoubtedly. And he was like, he was like, whatever it is, it's here, right? They don't see anything and they quietly move on. Well, that's at the exact moment that people are saying there's something in that screenshot. And and I zoom in and I'll be goddamned if you don't see what looks like something with like big shoulders and this hunched over head sort of brownish and reddish in color. It's there. Uh, it looks out of place to me. And then when the, the camera man, Zach, he sort of pans away cause he's scanning the wood line. And when he comes back, it's fucking gone. Oh, right? wow. I didn't know it was gone. Yeah. I didn't and, realize there's a second shot. Yeah. Were, yeah and I'm just like, Oh shit. And I, I must've Whoa. played this like 15, 20 times. I marked the tree where this, this thing was by. And when he comes back, I'm looking at the same tree and it's no, it's no longer there. So whatever it was moved. Um, well, I'll tell you what, that's funny wow. because in the moment leading up to that, when I was watching on Sunday night, now, by the time this episode drops, by the way, listeners, we're recording this about a week in advance. So, right. um, Episode nine will have aired. So we're talking about episode eight, which which was the Sunday before. Yeah, it's called Dark Memories. Dark Memories. So right before that happened, when they were sitting out there, I actually rewound in an earlier moment because I thought I saw something moving out in the tree line before the snap in the uh, in the direction that they were sort of facing what? and i did one of those like rewind rewind and i it was like the first time i watched it i saw the movement in the background yeah almost subliminally went back played it over a couple times and couldn't see what i was seeing anymore so huh. i thought i thought all right well maybe i'm you know just seeing stuff so then i watched it and then didn't notice that thing that your brother and other people have noticed but now i really need to go back watch that whole scene again and see if i pick up on anything else so if you're listening to this and you're one of those freeze frame freaks <laughs> i am a freeze frame freak 100 percent. then also check out uh the moments leading up to the snap and all those shots of the tree line because i swore i saw something move uh, yeah. The first time I was watching it. So BCC I, I mean, listeners, we are calling on you go. And this is what's great <laughs> about discovery plus, right? So they have a, they have a 10 second um, rewind button and I could just hit, click that 10 second, 10 second, watch it over and over again, but go back, watch that. It's at the 18 minute mark, 17 seconds in season two, episode eight, dark memories. Look at it, watch it. Tell me what you think. Tell me if you see something in those trees moving. It's and it's pretty insane. Bryce, what we should do is uh, you posted these pictures I on did. your Instagram, and Twitter. I think, yeah. You know, you should re- repost them on our Instagram as well. So um, I will do that on yeah, the BCC that's a great Instagram. Idea. So so if you guys are listening to this, it'll be up in the pat. You know, you just scroll back a couple of days, you'll be able to find it. Yeah, um, I'll just do a re a re a, re- a repost on on great. the day this drops, Mike. If you I mean, just we sound like me. a couple middle aged men and you know, talking about social to, media. I didn't want to be one of those blogs. Blob Squatch guys, where it's like they're, you know, the blo- let me just for those who don't know, Blob Squatch is just like, you know, somebody like circle. Look at this, I th- that's a Bigfoot, and it's just like it's obviously like a tree, just a, some blurry tree. And 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 usually, what's so funny to me is sometimes they'll circle like 
you know, six or seven in the same picture. And there's one and there's one and there's a little one. And you're just going, I don't see a fucking thing, you know, but, (laughs) but context, right? Context. When you look at this thing in the context of what, how it happened, it's, it's compelling. Definitely. And that concludes the context drinking game brought to you by Bryce Johnson. <laughs> I just really like the image of Bryce. Like it's like Dawn's being like, come to bed. And it's like three in the morning. He's just like 10 second rewind. Well, I showed Don. I showed Don and she goes like this, which is more than anything she's ever done. She goes, hmm. <laughs> All right. You got a. <laughs> and I was like, fucking A. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, to, and wow. you guys, you've been talking about all season how you guys get sent stuff and, you know, emails. And I, I recall during season one, you had a lot of people writing in or tweeting or whatever and saying, like, hey, I think I see something in this moment here or this moment here in the trees, yeah. you know? Because yep. I. Because there's got to be people who are watching these Bigfoot shows and they're they're just looking past you guys and just staring into the trees to see if there's yeah. anything there, which is, you know, smart. I I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's and it's a very uh, involved way of watching the show. But this really feels like to you from what you're saying that there might actually be something there. Yeah, so I'd say I'd say between season one and season two, this has happened maybe like th- three, maybe four times where people have spotted, hey, is there something moving in the background there? Or there's, I think you guys might have something in the background, and and they'll send me the frame. And I always go look, I always check, and and I go, mm, yeah, maybe, but this this more than any any of them was just, um, I was kind of like, oh my god, because you know why? Context. <laughs> I hope so much that you got footage of Bigfoot. That you know, this would be this the greatest thing ever. I, I did text my brother though. You know, hey man, in this there's no definitive answers in this quest for Bigfoot. You know, it just there hasn't been for uh, however long people have been on this quest, and it's and it's not going to come in 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 minute eighteen, seventeen second marker either. So, but go mm-hmm. check it out. Let me know what you think. You know, it, it's uh, it's strange. Cool. Love it. Well, I love that you're just involved in this entire project and you actually get to be close to and part of an expedition uh, looking for this. Because I'll tell you what, if your word of the week is context, my word of the week has been expedition because that's all I've been reading about uh, going through Yeti research. (laughs) I mean, I have... I can't even tell you. I've got a book called Abominable Science. I've got The Life and Times of Bigfoot. I've got the... uh, yeah, the you're Bigfoot in deep book. I've got Sasquatch yeah. by John Green over here. I've got oh, wow. Tales of the Yeti. I'm surrounded by this shit. So yeah, um, you're, you're in deep. All right. Well, before we head down that snowy slope, uh, Riley, we have some. BCC <laughs> Did you guys hear the sound cue? Did that yeah, work? Well, yeah, well, we heard it in your cans. You know? We can oh, hear God it in your it. cans. Close enough. We close enough. It. One day. One day. One yeah. day. We're still figuring out this new Zencaster video situation. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Yeah, it's all going to work out. And I got a story that's tailor made for Mr. BJ. Okay. Uh, scientists have found a freaky way to communicate with lucid dreamers. Oh, yeah. I saw this. I, 
I pulled this from Science and Tech uh, News uh, from the Dazed website because I'm just I'm now playing a secret game where I'm seeing if I can get all of my BCC news from like Vice and Stoner websites. Um, <laughs> nice, cool. So this is from no problem uh, the, with that. Yeah, February nineteenth. This is from Alex Peters, who writes, as a society, every day it seems we're getting closer and closer to to starring in our very own, very real science fiction movie. With this latest news from a team of scientists at Northwestern University, we are surely taking a big step towards it. In a study published yesterday, February 18th, in Current Biology, neuroscientist Ken Paller and his team revealed they have been experimenting with how to reach out to people while they are dreaming and to get them to answer back. Mm. Dreaming is an activity that is common to all humans, and neuroscientists believe it is an important part of processing memories. However, research into dreams has historically been limited since people cannot communicate while they are asleep and often forget their dreams once awake. In an, well, not me. In an attempt to come up with a solution, Dr. Powler has been researching lucid dreams, the term given to those mo- moments when you are aware that you're dreaming. Lucid dreams seem to be associated with only one type of sleep known as REM, that's rapid eye movement, sleep during which brain activity looks similar to that seen during waking hours. Studies have shown that during REM sleep, it is possible for people to be influenced by events happening in the outside world. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paller, therefore, hi- hi- hypo- hypothesized. Hypothesized. I got stuck. There's a little speed bump. You in my, broke for a second. A little there. speed bump in my sentence. <laughs> hypothesized. It might be possible to contact people while they are in that state as well. By the way, I'm lucid dreaming right now, which is why <laughs> I knew it. Where? <laughs> Uh, In order to test this theory, Paller and his team trained 35 volunteers to be mindful of their mental states and be aware of whether they thought they were awake or in a dream. Participants Mm. were also trained to make distinct eye movements to indicate they were aware they were dreaming and in response to questions and to interpret numbers conveyed as flashes of light or taps on their arm. First of all, it just sounds like they're... (laughs) faking that they're asleep right yeah that's my question with this yeah. whole thing like so they're just a little bit awake then that's they're what we're just doing. closing their eyes it's like you know well, they, when have, you're... they have all type of sensors hooked up to their heart and to their it's like when you you know fell asleep on the car on the way home and you, and you pretended to be asleep when your mom and dad carrying carried you into the house <laughs> uh, after training was completed the researchers monitored the participants while they slept waiting for eye signals after which they would ask questions after waking the several subjects reported that the questions had been incorporated into their dreams. One volunteer, for example, heard an audio question as uh, as through a car radio, while for another one of the numerical questions manifested as the street number of on a ha- of a house. Oh, that's so Whoa, cool. That's cool. Yeah. On the whole, however, the method tended to not work. In just 26% of the sessions, did people signal they were engaged in lucid dreaming. And of that group, only 47% answered a question correctly. Dr. Paller and his colleagues, however, have not been discouraged and say their findings refute the notion that attempting communication with dreamers is pointless. Just like I tried to explain to my history teacher in high school, you can get through to me. 
Let me just sleep in class. So who knows? Maybe in the future, Zoom will be obsolete as we all take meetings over REM cycles. So that's it. I mean, nice tight article. Thank you for indulging me in reading the whole thing. But I just think that is fucking cool. Yeah, that's way cool. And you know what? Those numbers are still those aren't bad because it's lucid dreaming is not easy as i've said mm-hmm. before it takes a lot of work and you can't just go in there on a you know they, they i guess they they pulled people who have said they you know have done lucid dreaming before so um but you know right you gotta and during enough, your hiatus in between seasons of expedition bigfoot you gotta sign up for the study i want to get back into it so much it's like, just so much and i love sleep and it just it you have to come. It fucks with your sleep, right? They're like, um, uh, sir, we're trying to get through to him, but he keeps making out with late 90s era Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know what to do. Oh, <laughs> Britney Spears is here. What do we do? It's common. People do that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, the basically the one of the pioneers of, of lucid dreaming studying a guy named Stephen LaBerge. Uh, he has a book, uh, th- which is what I read and, and learned to study it on. he would do the same thing. He would communicate with, with people sort of blinking in their REM sleep to let, let him know that they could hear him and, and that they were in a lucid dream. So they were signaling back and forth. Um, it's, I love how it shows up at, at like through a car radio and through a street sign. It's just like, yeah. it's like being in another world. And when you're conscious, when you're aware that you're in that other world, it's, it's such a unique experience. You can, you can do anything, manifest anything. You can talk to higher powers. It seems like you can talk to other intelligences. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Whenever I'm aware that I'm dreaming, I, I tend to wake up. You know yeah, what I mean? Because you get ex- that's what happens. Is so. First of all, it takes so much work to get into a lucid dream, and then once you become aware, you get really excited, and it'll pop you right out, right? And so, but there's little tricks right. to keep you into it. One is spur- spinning around like a whirling dervish. So if you ever become aware that you're um, that you're that you're aware in a dream, you're awake in a dream, you're lucid. Um, just first take a calming moment and then start spinning around and then that will, that will ground you. Uh, there's other techniques as well, but, uh, I would love, I was just, I was picturing like, what if you, what if you thought you were dreaming, but you weren't because you were so into lucid dreaming and then you just started spinning around like a whirling dervish, like in the supermarket. (laughs) You know? <laughs> then you're like oh shit no i'm awake okay yeah uh, right. <laughs> I, I, I also oh. just enjoy how quickly the term whirling dervish just trickled out of bryce's mouth <laughs> <laughs> well and you got to be careful too because if let's say you're gonna go on a on a little foray if you will you got to be like okay don't get too excited slow your roll <laughs> slow down you got this you That's got great. this oh my god she's taking you oh i'm awake fuck <laughs> Dervish, 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 dervish. dervish. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm oh, a scumbag. What do you want me to do? But did I ever tell? But with, without having um, uh, crazy, uh, you know, midnight encounters, I, I I would also do things like explore the the Great Pyramid and underneath the Sphinx. I would like try and locate during the your refractory period. You're yeah, like, thanks, like, baby. Oh. I'm gonna go fly over to the Sphinx yeah. right now. <laughs> I've had enough of you, Gwyneth. I'm gonna head over to the uh, to the Sphinx and look for the Hall of Records. I'll be right back. Uh, but so there's all kinds of shit you can do. It's a, you're only limited by your imagination. That's so awesome. I love that. 
<laughs> All right, Bryce, what do you got for us? Okay, well, more UFOs. More UFOs. Uh, NBC reports American Airlines pilot reports seeing a long cylindrical object fly over the plane. The pilot saw the strange object while flying over New Mexico on Sunday. Uh, an American Airlines pilot reported seeing a long cylindrical object come startlingly close to the aircraft as if it was flying over New Mexico. The FBI said it was aware of the incident, which occurred Sunday during a flight from Cincinnati to Phoenix. The pilot called air traffic control shortly after noon local time to report seeing the object, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. Do you have any targets up here? The pilot is heard asking on a radio transmission. We just had something just go over the top of us. I hate to say this. Look like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast. It went right over the top of us, the pilot added. The FAA said in a statement that air traffic controllers did not see any object in the area on their radar scopes. American Airlines confirmed that the radio call came from one of its flights, but deferred further questions to the FBI. Following a debrief with our flight crew and additional information received, we can confirm this radio transmission was from American Airlines Flight 2292 on February 21st, the airline company said. And, you know, I think a taboo is sort of going away that these pilots with all these UFO things in the news, they feel a little bit more confident and comfortable reporting it to their superiors without being grounded, you know? Um, So that's encouraging. Again, it's funny. Even with Don, Don came up and said, are are people seeing a lot of UFOs? I keep hearing about them. And I'm like, yes, yes. There's more UFOs now, it seems than ever. So it should be on yours. That's exactly what I, if it's on Don's radar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, my point was that, uh, just that my, you know, we got the lucid dreaming story in from a lot of listeners. Listeners sent in this story as well. But then a lot of people, and friends and family who are not don't have their thumb on the pulse sent me yeah. this stuff, you yeah. know, right. uh, sent me this article. So this is something that's breaking through to people who aren't just hanging out, uh, listening to this podcast, uh, yeah. which is really exciting stuff. I love that. I love when like the masses get involved with these UFO sightings, because here's the thing. Most people find it really intriguing and really it is exciting. Intriguing. What's not to be intriguing. And, you know, segueing perfectly into another big news item of the week. This is a big week for news for the BCC, but to the stars Academy. Oh, it's over, Bryce, guys. I'm so sorry, pal. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's okay. Uh, it reports out of, uh, let's see, where am I getting this? I don't know. Bryce Zabel wrote, uh, it's the end of To the Stars Academy, as we knew it. The latest SEC filing from the TTSA says it's become just another entertainment company trying to sell UFO content. The dream is over. Like a cosmic gas giant, To the Stars Academy appears to have exploded after a period of rapid expansion and instability. Details have been scarce since founding members Louis Elizondo, Steve Justice, and Chris Mellon took their leave last December. Now, the fall from grace has been made official, noted in the forward-looking rhetoric of a required Securities and Exchange Commission filing that reveals the showbiz core of planet TTSA is all that's left. And Bryce writes this one... uh, one sentence, which I just, which just encapsulates the UFO phenomenon. Um, let's see, uh, right here. Still, the reading of the companies, uh, blah 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 blah. You'd be forgiven if you thought that the biggest accomplishment was getting two full seasons 
of the TV reality series Unidentified on the History Cable Network. While the show had its moments, and this is what I love, it often appeared forced into the same old template of plucky UFO enthusiasts tilting at the windmill of truth to an unceasing soundtrack of semi-techno urgency. Build as a game changer, <laughs> it felt familiar and cookie cutter in form, if not content. And God, isn't that, you know, Damn. isn't that the case, right? It's like, just when you think, okay, the brightest minds in the, in the, in the business should be able to do this with their new company, right? Not so, not so. They don't fucking know anything and they can't keep a company that's supposed to say, we know things going when it, nobody knows shit, right? <laughs> it's like this UFO phenomenon is as, a, is as elusive as it ever was, as it ever has been. Um, you know, I don't know if we're getting closer to the bottom of this thing. You know, it is just, this just a funding thing. You think like they're just running out of money, so they just have to focus on de- like TV and film development. I think I think money's a big part of it too, and I, you know they were they were tasked with some pretty big benchmarks of trying to come out. I I know they were talking about some meta materials that were going to be analyzed. They're trying and, to build a UFO, they were trying to build a fucking UFO, and at the end of the day, you know, they're the best they could do was put a show out on History Channel and and, and publish a couple books, which I enjoyed. You know, I enjoyed those, but sure, that's what more than I've did. done, by the way. Yeah. Right. I mean, he, he said that, look, they're going to continue to keep up their entertainment um, part of that company. He still wants to buy, you know, scripts in this genre and, and in this subject matter and, and produce content. And um, so but yeah, but look, the days of Hal Pudoff and Russell Targ and Steve Mellon and, and Louis Alzheimer, all those the dream team is it has has broken up. So those are all the guys that were involved with breaking that New York Times story back in 2017. So to to the Stars Academy did have an influence on that story about the 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 Pentagon UFO ATIP program breaking, right? Absol- I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. So they, they got the ball. I mean, they did carry the ball down the field in that sense. We still here we are. What? Four years, three and a half years, talk, almost talking about yep. it later. Yep. So um, still talking about it. So they did that as well. But I wonder what Louis Elizondo and those guys are going to go do if they're going to stay in this field. If, you know, they'll probably I go just, work for Bigelow. You know, I well, mean, who, kn- that, who knows? Who knows what they're going to go do? Is the stuff, answer. I just feel like Bigelow is like nowhere near the mainstream. You know what Bigel- I mean? Yeah, Bigelow's onto consciousness now too, as we've read yeah. before. He's 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 ponying up a million dollars for for the proof of an afterlife in essay format, and so he's calling on all individuals uh, who think that they might have you know the closest he's, thing they can get to proof of there being a existence of the personality or the consciousness. Yeah, Bigelow UFOs were big. If if he were Ridley Scott. Like UFOs were his alien phase, and now this new "Give Me Proof of the Afterlife" <laughs> is his Prometheus phase. One hundred percent, just yeah. way more interested in AI than he is xenomorphs now. You know what yeah, I mean? Like 100%. he's literally moved on. We're like, but oh, uh, okay. What sky? What Skinwalker Ranch? Who cares? All right, let's move on to ghosts. <laughs> right, Fine. right, hundred percent. But I think you bring up a point. Like you have to hit a wall at some point where you're like, guys, we just can't build a ufo we just can't do yeah. it you yeah know? i mean it's just that's like this is. is a this is a classic example of aim high because you shoot low you know right. they just like they went for it you know they hit a target and uh you know 
now, now they're going to crank out some TV and make some money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if they want is, me to man. host a UFO show, I'm there. Okay, fine. <laughs> but, you know, are you it, listening? It, <laughs> Brent, come on. You know, it's just, it's funny how they just stirred up a, a foment, a froth of disclosure, too, though, right? It seems to, it's just like John Tenney said, these things, they come in cycles and they go in cycles, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll give it another 10 years, 15 years. We'll be talking about how, you know, someone's going to reveal the truth. Oh, boy. Well, boys, I think it's time to take a break. And when we come back, it's time to get into our latest deep dive episode of The Abominable Snowman. Let's do it. All right. We're back, and it's time for this week's story of high strangeness. Um, so I sort of already explained why I picked the Abominable Snowman to revisit, but I'm going to continue. Because Bryce didn't do a good enough job, apparently. <laughs> That's why. It was great. Right. Do you remember? Do you remember when he, uh, Michael was like, Bryce, we're, we're having Craig Ferguson on the show. Why don't you do Loch Ness or no, no, wait, no, never mind. This was before Craig Ferguson was on the show. He's like, Bryce, why don't you do Loch Ness? It's been a while. And it was like, I got a little, it was, I was getting used to writing my stories of high strangers and I veered off into like Lake Champy and like, yeah, 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 and yeah. Like, Bryce, he's like, you just, you're all over the place with this Loch Ness monster deserves its own episode. <laughs> we can't be talking about Lake Champy in Loch Ness's episode. We're going to have to shelf that. Yeah. It's true. We cut Bryce's Lake that. Monster story out of an episode. And then I was like, I'll do this. Hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, does that exist? Do we still have that somewhere on file? Bryce, uh, we should, we'll throw it up on the Patreon, maybe. Yeah, that we oh, might if have I to. Can, if I can find it. It's God, maybe buried deep in a hard drive somewhere. But it worked out so much better because that was obviously the perfect uh, high strangeness for Craig Ferguson, and, and you did so well on that. Well, yeah. Thanks, pal. I had you backing me up, uh, just like I'm going to have you doing tonight. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want everyone listening to humor me for a moment and close your eyes. Unless you're driving a car or operating heavy machinery, or you've just tossed a baby in the air and you need to catch it. Uh, in that case, just go ahead and use your mind's eye, but I'm going to say a phrase. Got your eyes closed. Great. I want you to take note and boys, I want you to do this too. I want you to take note of the image that pops in your head. You ready? Yep. Yeah. The abominable snowman. Mm. You see it? What do you picture? A frosty-tipped Bigfoot creature waist-deep in snow? A giant white monster with horns? A Rankin-Bass stop-motion animated character? An animatronic at Disneyland's Matterhorn? That one. The cover of an old paperback (laughs) copy of a choose-your-own-adventure? The box to a children's game called Yeti and My Spaghetti? A friendly character from Monsters, Inc.? What about you, Bryson Riley? What are you picturing? What do you picture when I say Abominable Snowman? I mean, I I stepped on your line there and fully pictured the uh, Matterhorn uh, from Disneyland. That's, That's just the first image that, that popped into my head. Probably because it's burned in there from being a kid. You know? Yeah. Like the yeah. first time I saw that, it really was like, whoa! Yeah, so... 
I got to admit, mine, it, the first thing that popped into my mind was the, the famous Eric Shipton foot tra- trackway. And then, and then the star Wars, uh, the Wampa. monster, the Wampa popped into my head right after mm. that. Right. Right. Yes. Both. I mean, though, I think the Wampa's there for me, the Matterhorn's there for me, but I, de- I do tend to picture this like giant i basically tend to picture like white bigfoot with blue skin like mm. icicle like popsicle bigfoot oh, that's yeah, what right. that's what comes to mind <laughs> popsicle you know <laughs> yeah. um but the matterhorn i remember being so excited the first time sidebar i wrote it i didn't know <sighs> there was a uh because i didn't grow up here i didn't go to disneyland until i was an adult and living out here and i didn't ride the matterhorn until then i was so thrilled when i discovered that there was a yeti on that ride and now so good. one of my favorite the idea that there is a cryptid in the heart of disneyland makes me so so happy and i think one of the reasons i love that that place so much and you know where the you know where the original because they redid it you know where the original yeti is is now at disneyland uh-uh. it's in the uh the collector's tower in uh guardians of the galaxy uh uh mission breakout Oh so shit! No way. Been relocated as part of the collector's collection, the original Yeti on the Matterhorn. So, hey guys, Whoa, don't stop! Awesome. I've got a plug-in power to my Mac to MacBook. I'm in my 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 son's room tonight. So stand by. <laughs> Hold on. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned good. that you were under your son's bed or something. Yeah, he's he's live from a bunk bed right now. Man, I I uh, I haven't been to Disneyland in so many years. I haven't even seen the new Star Wars world or any of that. The Guardians of the Dude, Galaxy. Dude, that's all changing once we're out of this pandemic. But yeah. Riley, I do want to. I want to. I want to zero in on your imagination here for a moment, uh, because like we did with Roswell, and I know we've talked about it here on the show. You've been doing a Bigfoot podcast now for a few years. What What do you like? What's your take? What do you know about the Yeti? What's your take on the Yeti? I mean, it's my, like, knowledge of the Yeti is very, like, pop culture based, you know, just like, like, just sort of more in the, like, sort of cutesy, like, um, I'm sorry, I'm so distracted by Bryce. (laughs) Bryce, I was like, the the loudest getting of... You're like a background character in, like, the Muppet show. You're, like, so distracting. Just, just uh, as you were, as you were. Somehow anyways, more that. animated when you were off mic than right? you were yeah, it's like doing crashing around the room. Uh, we were talking to Riley about what he knows about and what he thinks about the abominable snowman or Yeti. Uh, yeah, and I and I was saying that my knowledge of it is very like pop culture vibes. Like it's more on the kind of cartoonish character, like the you, you know the Disneyland ride kind of vibe. I don't really know much of anything about the actual accounts of it or mm. research into it or anything like that. It's more of like a a cute fuzzy, as Michael said, popsicle Bigfoot. Oh, in my good. Mind. Well, I think yeah. you're in probably in for a surprise then tonight. Oh, bring it on. You guys have already done a number on my belief system, so let's oh, just good. keep it going. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> well, Riley, those images and all the images we described are valid for a cryptid that has hit icon status in mass culture, yet, unlike its slightly more popular cousin Bigfoot, the Coke to the snowman's Pepsi, which is generally agreed upon to be an eight-foot-tall, brown, hairy, ape-like creature, the snowman's image varies wildly throughout our cultural visual dictionary. 
white fur with blue skin, brown fur with dark skin, reddish fur with light skin. The Yeti comes in many forms, which is interesting for a cryptid that has remained mostly out of sight for all of its purported existence. In this two-part BCC deep dive, we're going to take a look back at the abominable snowman, the folklore it came from, how it got its name, and why it captured the world's imagination. We may even walk away with a real sense of whether or not this creature actually exists. Strap on your snowshoes, grab a pickaxe, and brew up a cup of piping hot English breakfast tea. We're sending winter off with a bang and going exploring for the Yeti. This is the Abominable Snowman Part 1, Mountain of Evidence? (laughs) A.K.A. Popsicle Bigfoot. (laughs) Let's get into it. So uh, I wanted to take note that the primary sources for this story come from uh, Bigfoot, The Life and Times of a Legend by Joshua Bluebus, Bhutanese Tales of the Yeti by Kunzang Choden, Sorry, and the Bigfoot book by Nick Redfern, uh, all which I mentioned earlier. The Abominable Snowman is said to be a bipedal hominid creature fabled to dwell in the remote regions of the Himalayas, namely Nepal, Tibet, Sikkim in northeastern India, and Bhutan. I almost said northeastern Indiana, (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) during, during the winters like we've had, maybe there is a Yeti there. The creature goes by many names. The most popular name here in the West, next to Abominable Snowman, of course, is Yeti, which comes from the Sherpa people of eastern Tibet. But it has many numerous names from the different people native to the region. The Tibetans call it Gangsmi, Glacier Man, or Mi Shopo, Strong Man, or Mi Shen Po, Great Man. The Lepcha people refer to it as Chumung, the snow goblin, or Hlomung, the mountain goblin, which honestly, those are the coolest uh, yeah, that's names. Metal. Snow goblin? Yeah, that's... Why don't we call it the fucking snow goblin? That's cool. The Nepalese call it Nyalmu, or Bana Manch, versions of wild man. And in Bhutan, it is known as the Migoy, strong man, or the Gredpo, which sounds like the name of a Star Wars bounty hunter. In the book, Bhutanese Tales of the Yeti, author Kunzang Choden describes how Bhutanese folklore believe in two different types of snowmen. There's the short Machume, or Mergola, which is a three-foot-tall, reddish-brown hominid with a hairless, human-like face that sticks to the forests around the 2,500-meter elevation region, as it is known And it is known for its skill at mimicry. To come across a machume could be an omen of bad luck. Legends would tell of cattle herders who stumbled upon one of the creatures while searching for a lost animal. The surprise meeting ending with the machume vanishing into thin air or running off into the dense forest. Typically, death or misfortune would ensue. The Magoy Gredpo is the second type of snowman. And this is the beings that the Sherpas refer to as the Yeti. Now, I just want to sidebar here real quick. Already, we're hearing stories from folklore that this being, or at least the smaller version of this being, 
is uh, can mimic, sticks to the woods, and can vanish into thin air. I mean, ring any bells, Mr. Expedition Uh, Bigfoot? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. rings quite a few. The Magoy, the Yeti Yeti that we're thinking of, lives in the 3,500 to 5,000 meter elevation range, descending the mountains during snowstorms in search for food and warmer shelter, which is when people would usually encounter this creature. The Magoy are large, ape-like creatures very akin to Sasquatch, The females are even described as having large pendulous breasts with hair color ranging from red to dark brown. They communicate through whistling and are said to have a very distinct foul odor. Again, Again, where have we heard this before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. According to Bhutanese folklore, (laughs) Magoy has existed long before the ancestral memory, our ancestral memory, and it has many magical attributes and accessories. One such item is the spirit bag, which contains the Magoy's soul. Should a human nab the Magoy's spirit bag, it can be controlled and even enslaved. If it is separated from its spirit bag or loses it, the Magoy will stop at nothing to reclaim it. Another magical item the Magoy carries, specifically under its right arm, is a charm called a dipshing, a magical stick that looks like an ordinary twig, but grants the Magoy the power of invisibility. Bhutanese children are warned that the Magoy has a hollow back, and if they don't behave, they may be caught and carried in the backs of the creature. I'm doing everything I can to keep my Uncle Dicky out of the room with speared bags and dipsticks right what's, now. What's, well, Uncle Dicky, <laughs> what do you got for us? He's fucking guy. He's these Magoys. I, I know who they are. And they know Yeti. Let me tell you that. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. I also like that this this also sounds like a very primitive version of, of Perchta and... Um, and uh, uh, Krampus, which we were talking yeah. about mm-hmm. on the other side uh, over the holidays, this idea of like this boogeyman that will take children away or punish children. But I love that. I just fucking love that. You know, we've been talking about can Bigfoot camouflage himself or can he disappear or slip into a portal? And like the folklore has these like magic powers built into them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. They're like shamans or they're like wizards almost. It's really wild. And part why, of the why, stories. Maybe why couldn't they be shamans of the of the right. woods for forest shamans? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And there, there are these stories about how you get a dipshing for yourself. You have to like steal like a magpie egg and then hard boil it and then put it back in the nest. And then when it doesn't hatch, the magpie will like fly off to find a dipshing and bring it back to the nest. And then that will hatch the hard boiled egg for the magpie. And, and then I think it's magpies. I'm doing this out of memory. And then like they'll abandon the babies and the mother will abandon the nest. And then you have to take the whole nest and comb through all the ordinary twigs until you find the dipshing that's like the only way you can get one of the humans could get one of these that's and like, just a, that's a magic ritual right there man 
Yeah, totally. That's also a way to like keep an annoying child busy for an, for like three hours. Seek the magpie. Yeah, go through this nest and find the magic twig. <laughs> so stories like these existed in folklore about the Yeti long before Western civilization turned him into a fuzzy cartoon character, like Riley mentioned, and also a horror trope. We owe the popularity of the Abominable Snowman, like many other native tales throughout the Eastern world, to the work of good old-fashioned British imperialism. (laughs) Back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the British Empire ruled nearby India and had a large presence in the Himalayan region, with its eye on regional control and climbing and conquering Peak 15 better known today as Mount Everest. Named after Sir George Everest, former Surveyor General of India. As we'll see later in the story, the post-World War I conquest of Mount Everest, the highest point in the world, was akin to an early moon race, with China, Russia, and the British Empire all gaming to be the first to make it to the top of the world for the glory of their respective nations and to flex their geopolitical geopolitical power and mastery real cute stuff (laughs) the earliest brush between the western world and the yeti appears in 1832 when b.h hodgson a british national living in nepal reported locals in his employ told tales of a wild man of the mountains which hodgson simply wrote off as a possible orangutan because Why would indigenous people know more about the fauna in their native lands than some upper-class British dude? Hodgson stated, My shooters were once alarmed in the Kachar by the apparition of a wild man, possibly an orang, but I doubt their accuracy. They mistook the creature for a cocoa demon or rakshas and fled from it instead of shooting it. It moved, they said, erectly was covered with long hair and had no tail. So already the Yeti is sort of uh, seen as some type of demon, uh, which is kind of cool because that has echoes of where the footprints and the, you know, Joshua uh, Cochin and, and Tim Renner's books where they're talking about the wilderness geist and these hairy devils. Um, and Hodgson, you know, thought that maybe it was possible that these were just, it was an orangutan. Uh, you know, you'll see that a lot of these early explorers are very fascinated by these stories, but they don't really buy into the belief of it. That comes later. Evidence of the Yeti appeared again in 1899 when a major in the Indian Army Medical Corps, Lawrence Waddell, found tracks in Sikkim which he would go on to write about in his book, Among the Himalayas. Waddell had been told by numerous Tibetans about the creature, but despite the wide footprints staring at him in the snow, which his porters claimed belonged to the legendary beast, Waddell remained a skeptic. Finally, in 1903, William Hugh Knight actually laid eyes on a yeti while traveling through the Himalayas near the Tibetan border in Sikkim, India. Knight had been traveling by horseback with a company of about 50 people and had just climbed a steep ascent near Gangtok. Knight stopped to let his horse rest and watch the sunset. 
he heard a strange sound and turned to see a strange entity about 15 to 20 feet away staring down the hillside in the opposite direction, seemingly unaware of the man's presence. Knight said that this yeti was... A little under six feet high, almost stark naked in that bitter cold. It was the month of November. He was kind of a pale yellow all over, a shock of matted hair on his head, little hair on his face, highly splayed feet, and large, formidable hands. His muscular development in the arms, thighs, legs, back, and chest was terrific. He had in his hand what seemed to be some sort of primitive bow. What? Which is fascinating that mm. maybe it was the dipshing. I didn't even think yeah. about that. I think there's stories, and Bryce, you mentioned this in um, our previous episode, that Alexander the Great supposedly encountered an army of hairy wild men that had were armed with spears and bows and arrows. Was that me? Yeah, you mentioned it briefly, and I read the notes, went back yeah. to the episode. Yeah, I yeah, the, 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 there's like legends of Alexander the Great fighting like an army of Sasquatch or Yeti in 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 this region or the Yemen in China. Yeah, Some, that's, that's somewhere wild. around here. I'd have to, you know, we should probably devote a whole story of high strangeness to it. But and, um, and you get the Bigfoot lore too with a uh, with a club in its hand, you know. So there's there's some of that as well. Right, right, right. So over dinner that night, the men in Knight's company didn't seem at all surprised by the description of Knight's Yeti. So he just kept the story to himself until the creature's popularity started making headlines in the early 1920s. This, to me, reminds me of Albert Osman's story of his Bigfoot kidnapping, which he didn't really tell anybody until the stories of Bigfoot started coming out and becoming public. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was kidnapped by one of those. <laughs> right. You know, it's always sketchy when somebody jumps in on the bandwagon later. But, um, again, these guys don't seem that impressed by this or really buy into these stories. So I don't think they were that interested in, in sharing knowledge of this folktale or this creature. It's really like the press who picks up on it. Um, and as we'll see right now, the name abominable snowman emerged in the early 1920s. It was coined uh, based on a mistake in translation by a reporter named Henry Newman, who was investigating an alleged encounter involving British military officer Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry during the Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, the first of its kind, which launched in 1921. At an elevation of 20,000 feet, Howard Berry discovered confounding tracks in the snow, we were able to pick out tracks of hares and foxes, but one that first looked like a human foot puzzled us considerably. In the article he wrote for the Calcutta Statesman about Howard Berry's account, Newman got lost in translation while interviewing Tibetans, confusing the phrase Mito Kangmi, meaning man-like creature, for Mech Kangmi, meaning filthy or dirty, and thus the name Abominable Snowman was born. Perfect. And what a name it was. Suddenly, the Yeti went from being Himalayan folklore to a popular global character. People around the world began to wonder, what is the Abominable Snowman? Is it real or is it a legend? In 19... <laughs> 
1925, <laughs> oh, I'm going to laugh at myself. In 1925, N.A. Tombazi, a photographer and fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, added, lo- added logs to the speculative fire when he encountered what could have been the abominable snowman near the Zimu Glacier, the largest glacier in the eastern Himalaya. Tobazi wrote, Unquestionably, the figure and outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up dark against the snow, and as far as I could make out, wore no clothes. Rhododendron, dear boys. Rhododendron. Rhododendron, indeed. Yes. It's a dwarf rhododendron. Rhododendron. You say rhododendron, I say rhododendron. <laughs> let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> let's, ah. let's, let's, let's. Tombazi trudged down to the area where he'd spotted the creature and found man-like tracks measuring six inches long, which to me doesn't seem that impressive. Uh, Other mountaineers and explorers would see or hear tales spoken of Yeti relics in lamaseries, like the Yeti scalp of Kumjong Monastery in Nepal, which remains highly questionable due to later hair analysis on the scalp. Uh, which would come back belonging to a cloven-hooved animal or an undulate, like, say, a yak. One of the first explanations for the Yeti, and one that we'll get into more detail uh, in part two of this uh, two-parter, was that the abominable snowman was actually a species of bear, of which a handful of species inhabited the Himalayan region. Another explanation put forth by zoologists was that the footprints could have been explained by langurs, which are types of monkeys, or even leaping otters, who have (laughs) also been blamed for Loch Ness Monster. Are otters really cryptid mimic tricksters? A mountaineer by the name Frank Smythe wrote the the Yeti legends off as the fabled imaginings of superstitious natives, who still practiced a primitive form of nature worship, an example of problematic relationship between the white British imperialist and the indigenous culture they are exploring, and in many cases, outright conquering. That being said, with only legends, folktales, false idols, scant eyewitnesses, eyewitness sightings, and a few puzzling tracks, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of Yeti evidence to go by. Besides, there was the far more looming prospect that had to be obtained, climbing Mount Everest. In 1951, a team of explorers attempted reaching the summit of Mount Everest, led by Britain's most esteemed mountain climber, Eric Shipton. Shipton and his team, which included some of Britain's best climbers, including Michael Ward, Bill Murray, not that one, Tom Bordelon and New Zealanders H.E. Riddiford and Edmund Hillary, along with 10 Sherpas, were forging new and untested paths to reach the top of the mountain after communist China took over Tibet and blocked the old routes once pioneered by men like Howard Burry. In their process to plant the British flag at the peak of Mount Everest, Shipton would end up staking the abominable snowman firmly, perhaps permanently, into mass culture. Having set out from Nepal, the expedition began in September and continued through the autumn of 1951. On the early morning of September 7th, 
Shipton, Ward, and a Sherpa named Sentensing left the rest of the group to scout the nearby peaks and valleys. They ventured all day, eventually arriving at the head of the Menlung Glacier in knee-deep snow. At 4 p.m., they discovered a set of mysterious tracks in the thick white powder. Originally, Shipton mistook the tracks for their own, but quickly realized that they were indeed in new, unexplored territory for their expedition and hadn't doubled back as he first uh, suspected. The tracks indicated that two animals had passed through this way ahead of Shipton, Ward, and Tensing. So the snow kicked up by the movement of the creatures had not melted, despite the bright, shining sun that had been accompanying the crew all day long. However, the shape of the tracks themselves had melted slightly in the heat into broad oval shapes larger than the impressions made by the men's boots. But Shipton saw that there, where the snow had been thinnest over the ice, there were well-preserved footprints showing three fat toes and a big thumb-like toe. The big toe. Shipton couldn't could even indicate where the creatures had jumped across gaps and used their toes to secure footing on the other side. The tracks went on for at least a mile, but as it was getting dark, the crew decided to take what evidence they could they could and make their way back to camp. Shipton snapped up a bunch of photographs, placing the head of his ice axe along the length of the footprints for scale. Shipton described that night back at camp as having an eerie feeling that somewhere in that moonlit silence, the strange creatures that had preceded us down the glacier were lurking. Now that photograph I mentioned, that's the photo that Bryce, you brought up as the one one that you picture when you think of. Legendary. I mean, you just cannot see that photo and just see, uh, a, a primate foot like a lo- like i don't know a fucking foot with with all toes there it's it's unmistakable it's Would not a bear s- it's not a bear double step and it, it was it was quite a, 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 a it was a massive trackway going for almost a quarter mile long um so it's not just i mean that that one photo is famous of the footprint but it went the trackway went on for quite a distance yeah yeah it's true and we're going to get into a little bit more of the analysis of those tracks in just a moment but would you say that that photo is as iconic or close to as iconic as like the Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot image? Yeah, it's right. It's it's second place, right behind it. No doubt about it. Wow. So cool. So Murray and Bordelon, the two other men in the group, would relocate the trackway a few days later, mostly melted now but visible enough to lead them down a two-mile trek before vanishing. As for Sentencing, well, he was sure the Yeti had left the tracks after seeing one for himself a few years earlier, which he described as ape-like with reddish-brown hair and a hairless face. Shipton, for one, was convinced that the stories of the abominable snowman were true. Bordelon, too, became a believer, simply scribing in a letter home, <clears throat> the abominable snowman is not a myth. Period. Well, what if that was the whole letter? <laughs> That's all he wrote to his wife. I think that was it. That's why I took my time with it. <laughs> Talk soon. <laughs> <laughs> 
LOL, love love you lots. <laughs> what? I thought uh, LOL meant love. What, what did people think? What did grandmas think LOL used to stand for? Laugh out. Lots of, lots lots of, of love. love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots yeah. of loves. Lots yeah. of love. Uh, uh, borderline. Shipton's expedition did not make it to the top of Everest, but the story and photos were printed in London newspapers. The media hopped on the snow-kissed bandwagon, and the abominable snowman, whose growing popularity had been interrupted by World, World War II, rocketed to pure stardom. The Yeti became a bona fide movie star. Featured in classic 1950s monster movies with names like Snow Creature, Man Beast, Half Human, and the Hammer Horror uh, straight to the point title, The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. Hell yeah. Suddenly, the debate was resurrected. Was the Abominable Snowman fact or fiction? Biologists, zoologists, sociologists, journalists all got in the game finding ways to justify or debunk the possibility of an undiscovered bipedal creature living in the highest mountains of the world. Folklore from the past, like the Bhutanese stories of the wild man of the mountains, were dug up to point out the fact that surely something had been there all along. Others claimed the footprints were left by highly disciplined monks who were immune to the cold climate of the Himalayas. In 1955, Indian scholar Swami Pranavada said that this was all just a big case of bad translation, you guys, stating that the term mete or meto did not mean filthy, as that reporter Henry Newman had gotten wrong a couple of decades earlier, but more accurately, it stood for man bear. The explanation was staring everyone in the face all along. The Yeti was simply the Himalayan Red Bear, who the locals had given the name to uh, of Man Bear after witnessing it walking on its hind legs. A man by the name of Slavmir Rowasitz, Rowasitz, or Rowchitz? I don't know how to say this name. Bryce? R O W A C I C. <laughs> that's right that's right so uh Rowouches wrote an eye-popping book recounting his alleged escape from a russian gulag where he encountered two yeti while venturing from siberia into india yeah however shipton as well as others disputed the geography of his story and wrote it off as bunk fake lore and folklore were merging into one big yeti shaped slushy you like this story right he was like a he was a, a, a allegedly a polish soldier who was like yeah. on the run through siberia and china and 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 encountered like two like what did, were they did they have weapons did those yeti have weapons in no story? but they guarded the door like some sort of sentinels or they the this large gate it's an incredible story and it's and it's not written as a work of fiction it was it was written as a yes. work of nonfiction. So, it, was I mean, his, it was in pretty, his memoirs. Yeah, it's a pretty harrowing account of this guy's escape from a, a like a, one of the worst prison camps ever, and then where and, Yetis were guards, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, they, they the Yetis were were way past the Gulag, but I liked picturing that they worked at the Gulag, that they were like wardens <laughs> at the Gulag. Yeah, sure, you could do that. 
So one interesting figure who entered the picture was a French biologist and by all rights an early cryptozoologist named Bernard Huvelmans, who was nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of zoology. And the game was most certainly afoot. Like the famous detective of Baker Street, Huvelmans used deductions uh, or the Zadig method to allow for the existence of unseen things. Zadig was the titular character in a 1748 novel by Voltaire, who was able to describe the queen's lost dog by never seeing it, but by using the deductive method by the clues it left behind, like uh, to nail its height, weight, and stature. Huvelmans applied Zadig's method to the evidence left by the footprints and eyewitness accounts to draw conclusions about the creature. This is the primary method still applied today in investigating Bigfoot, primarily. I mean, we see Bryce and his team do it every week on Expedition Bigfoot. Huvelmans, in essence, was one of the first biologists to pay attention to what we now call Class B Bigfoot evidence as a way to support the existence of the abominable snowman. Did you know that you're like a Bigfoot Sherlock Holmes, Bryce? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of knew that. (laughs) Fair enough. Pretty much. So speaking of evidence, a zoologist at Queen Mary College in London by the name of Vladimir Cherneski recreated the Shipton Prince using plaster in order to better study the anatomy of the foot that left them behind, believing the details in the photograph eliminated the possibility of them being the melted remains of a smaller track. During the anatomical reconstruction and study of the plaster prints, Chernesky noticed noted that the large heel, the powerful big toe, which is good for grasping, and the elongated second toe, helping it make, make helping it make walking upright easier by maintaining balance. The print showed characteristics of both human-like long tarsal bones and the gorilloid characteristics of a wide heel. Cherneski concluded that the print must have come from a large, heavy primate. Riley, we have a facsimile of that very print in the clubhouse. We do. It's on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. Gifted to me by my sister for Christmas. Thank you, sis. Yeah, it's Um, awesome. So this is cool. So basically, since he didn't have... Uh, any way of putting plaster in the actual footprints themselves. He worked with the photographs and basically doing like a, a you know, an old school three dimensional reconstruction, right? Like a computer yeah. analysis, just using his good old fashioned eyeballs and creativity to reconstruct what the footprint would look like in three dimensions. I'm Googling and- it right now. I want to look at it again. It's pretty cool, you know. Um, And around this time, also in the mid 50s, Bryce has also made me think I mean, uh, not to plug your show for the millionth time, but made me think about Expedition Bigfoot, where um, they'd recently found this giant jawbone. Um, I think, I can't remember exactly where it was. It's somewhere near this area. But the Gigantopithecus had been, uh, they'd known about it. They'd found smaller fossils that sort of led them to believe, but it was the first time they found this giant mandible, this giant jawbone, mm-hmm. and uh, were able to go, okay, this belonged to a Gigantopithecus, which some of these guys like Huvelmans thought maybe 
was an ancestor uh, to the Yeti or related to the Yeti, right? Yeah. So this kind of made me think about all those bones, the quote unquote giant bones that people have found over the years, like that big jawbone. I'm like, might've been our good old friend, Gigantopithecus. Yeah. Um, and maybe some of this stuff just spit spitballing here off the cuff. Maybe some of this stuff is just our, these old folk tales of these wild men or ancestral memories of the Gigantopithecus itself before it died out or were killed off by humans. Yeah, it's certainly worth looking at, that's for sure, man. So after a few failed attempts to reach the top of Mount Everest, Shipton, ever the Yeti enthusiast and always keeping an eye out for evidence on his expeditions, was replaced by Army Colonel John Hunt, who ultimately led the expedition that finally conquered Everest on May 29th, 1953. Ra rah, go Britain! But that didn't mean everyone was packing up their gear and heading back to Blighty. Now that that was out of the way, expeditions could be funded purely with the intent to locate and prove the existence once and for all of the Yeti. Journalist Ralph Izzard, who had reported on Hunt's expedition to Everest, managed to talk the London Daily Mail into sponsoring an expedition to hunt down the Yeti. The conquest received jeers throughout mainstream media as a joke and a publicity stunt. But the blessing of John Hunt, the man who led Britain to the top of Everest, brought credibility to Izzard's project. He reminded the press that such an expedition would be no simple task and added, I believe in the Yeti. I've seen its tracks, heard its yelping call, listened to first-hand experiences of reputable people. Izzard and a team of eight, including two men from Hunt's expedition, John Jackson and Tom Stobart, a scientist from the Zoological Survey of India named Biswami Biswas, and an American expat living in New Delhi named Gerald Russell, who'd been, the, who'd been with the first expedition to capture a live panda, assembled for a 16-week quest to capture the fabled abominable snowman. Meanwhile, America had been watching the Yeti story from afar and would soon be joining in the hunt. But we'll get into all of that next week in our conclusion to The Abominable Snowman, a.k.a. Popsicle Bigfoot. Well done, boy. Pip, pip. Well done, old Travis. Good good on you, sir. Thank you. So... You know, stumbles aside here and there in my narrative, you know, what I'm trying to do here is similar to what we did with Roswell and put together a timeline uh, of the the history of the Yeti, the abominable snowman, and how we arrive to where we are today. So that's kind of where we'll be heading uh, next week. But this, I don't know why it is. I always like making timelines. For me, it makes the whole thing make more sense. For me, that's the yeah. context that I'm looking for. But yeah. uh, what do you think, Riley? What are your th- initial thoughts coming out of part one? I mean, I think this feels like a group project in school where one person clearly did all the other work <laughs> and the other, the, the other two just kind of ripped. Oh. <laughs> but you did a really good job, and I think we got an A. Get together in groups of three, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, no, but uh, seriously, though, I mean, uh, I, it's it's a really, you know, it's an interesting 
collection of evidence and I, I love getting the backstory on it and and seeing you know kind of the world it came from and you know it's, it's like with all this stuff there's these folklore roots and then there's you know uh pretentious people miss uh just writing off uh the the beliefs and the accounts of indigenous people and then there's a coming back around to it and it's um I know yeah. it's it's a fascinating subject. It, it absolutely it, is. It is, you know, and it is this sort of window into this time that, you know, this time of imperialism that pretty much was ending around this time. You know what I mean? It was sort of mm-hmm. like after Everest, the, the British Empire starts to decline. You know, uh, India gets its uh, independence around this time. Um, and. I just find that I like I find the geopolitical stuff really fascinating that in all of this uh, jockeying for world power that um and domination that like the story of like in the in the tallest part of the world this story of like there might be one last undiscovered creature up there you know what I mean mm. it sort of mm. feels like a way of romanticizing uh you know, what is basically, you know, colonialism and imperialism. Um, but it's interesting. I just find all that stuff fascinating. Um, opinions aside, it's just, I, it's, it's, it's such a cool time period and obviously had an input impact on mass culture. Like there's a reason why there's a snowy mountain in the middle of Disneyland. Disneyland opened in 1955. So, the Matterhorn, which came later, I think didn't come until the late fifties or early sixties, but like it had this, like this idea of mountain climbers and snowman, you know, yetis and abominable snowman had this impact on the cultural imagination, you know? And it's sort of like, then it's sort, I really do think then segued into sort of in the sixties, it became all about the moon, right. And then aliens, Fastest, and highest, like farthest rockets. You know? Yeah. So it's, right. there's something about human ingenuity that's tied to this. And the idea that at the top of the mountain, we might run into our most primitive selves. Man. I like that. It's very psychedelic, man. Who knows? So crazy. Oh. So just so crazy. It's weird, weird stuff. All right. Well, we'll talk more about it next week. Uh, guys, anything to plug before we say goodbye? Uh, you know, the other side, I would say, I guess, is the one that we've been talking about before the episode. And we have a lot of really exciting plans for it. And it's already really awesome. Uh, we just dropped the video of the last episode on there that was really fun to make. And I look forward to doing more of that video content. And it's also just a really interactive space for the show and something we really enjoy. And I would love it if you came over and joined us over there. Yeah. Five bucks a month, three to five bonus episodes every month. Plus, all kinds of fun new video content that's starting Plus, to Plus, like out. an entire bonus uh, recap series of Bryce's show. So oh, we yeah. really have, <laughs> also like, that. I think we've dropped like 20 episodes already this year over There's there. There's a lot of great content over there, you know, yeah. absolutely. So, um, yeah, check it Patreon. out. Patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's there it. You go. That's it. And find new 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 episodes of Expedition on Discovery Plus. Uh, we're closing out the season, and it is gangbusters. You are not going to want to miss it. So check it out. Um, I have an odd thing to plug. There is a new show, animated show on Sci-Fi called Devil May Care. Uh, Alan Tudyk plays the devil. I did a little work on this show. It was one of my quarantine jobs. Um, it's by uh, created by Doug Goldstein, who's one of the robot chicken dudes. 
And so uh, I did a little tiny like uh, script consultation work on this series. I was very happy to see that it's out. I think it's really funny and fun. So definitely check that out. Devil May Care on Sci-Fi. Um, I really had very little to do with it, but my name's in the credits. So go check it out and support support my friends over at Stupid Buddies. Um, and then, of course, uh, follow us, Bigfoot Collectors Club on Instagram. Follow us at Bigfoot Pod on Twitter. Go to apple Podcasts, do us a big favor would you give us a five star review if you do we might we, we might read one right here on the air i'm having trouble pulling them up uh, uh pulling up reviews on my uh, on my you can iPod. do it but you uh, can do it. I'm, I'm gonna just do it right time. now i'm you're, just you're vamping anyway, just oh, riley when does your album come out <laughs> oh i okay so now i think it's gonna be june 1st i mean don't hold me to it but I think that's the release date we've decided on with the label and figuring out um, vinyl pressing and all that stuff. But it's coming and it's available for pre-order right now. And it's I'm really excited about it. I'm so, it's It's been a long, hard road getting this thing out and getting through COVID times and the band's warehouse getting ripped off and all this stuff. But Where well, are you got guys with all coming. your missing instruments? What happened? Ugh. Well, we did recover the legendary double neck guitar, which was stolen twice from me. And twice made its way back to me, which feels pretty mystical. Uh, but other than that, it's pretty much all gone. So um, we we launched a Kickstarter. I, I, if you want to do that, if it'd be appreciated. I really don't like asking people for money. Um, if you want to pre-order the record, that would be awesome. That's also going towards rebuilding the band. But I mean, if anything, I just I'm very excited about this record. The band will persevere and. We can't wait to get back out there again. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Sun Eaters, Chris Garibaldi, who uh, did the, you know, co-wrote the theme song to our show, says it kicks a ton of ass. So uh, I can't wait to hear <laughs> I did it. send him an advanced leaked copy because I, I really enjoy his music as well. Great. All right, here we go. So somebody writes, uh, I'm Sefi, wrote, five stars for a well-rounded trio. Love the show. Intriguing. High Strangers Talk combined with the proper dash of sophomore guy humor. Fair enough. The guys make us all feel like we've known them for years, except for Bryce's off-hinted untold secrets. The guests bring perspectives from a wide range of beliefs. Thanks for hours and hours of enjoyment. Uh, that is a five-star, five-star review. So thank so you good. for doing that. It really does help get the show to more people, which is what we want to do. All right. We love you guys. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, hope you enjoy this first part of the deep dive. We'll see you next week for week for part two of the abominable snowman. Until then, good night. And go get regressed. Right. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. 
a mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.